This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing, each of us does it our own unique way, and that's why TD Ameritrade offers everything you need to invest on your terms. From award-winning technology to personalized guidance, visit tdameritrade.com slash YTDA, as in not who, what, or when, but tdameritrade.com slash YTDA to get started. And thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool. Slack is a collaboration hub for work that makes sure the right people in your team are always in the loop, and key information is always at their fingertips. Learn more at slack.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Well, it is our Authors in August theme, and it's been a delight for me to bring to you some of my favorite authors of some of my recent favorite books. So far, our Authors in August series for Rule Breaker Investing has introduced us to marketing iconoclast Seth Godin and Gatherings visionary Priya Parker, each of whom, as a fellow Rule Breaker, challenges the conventional wisdom of their fields, challenges the status quo, and shares with us their unconventional and winning wisdoms. Well, now Rule Breaker's Authors in August brings us to another Rule Breaker, a man who stepped away from a Wall Street research desk in his mid 40s and became a critically acclaimed novelist. In 2011, Amor Tolls published his debut novel, Rules of Civility, and he's followed that up most recently with the enchanting A Gentleman in Moscow in 2016. Now, I doubt this is the case, but A Gentleman in Moscow almost seems like an answer to a bar bet or a particularly devilish writing prompt. Can you produce a 480 page? best-selling novel based on the main character being confined largely to a single place for basically the entire novel. Early in the novel, aristocratic Count Alexander Rostov finds himself on the wrong end of the Russian Revolution and winds up in house arrest for the remainder of his days, with that house arrest specifically spent at the Grand Metropole Hotel in Moscow. Through him, we meet the hotel's motley crew of employees and many distinguished guests passing through, and the novel shows off Tolls' two superhero powers, to turn delightful phrases and to paint magical pictures. And I love the novel. I read the whole thing aloud to my wife, Margaret. And now, a few months later, I'm very pleased to be bringing its author, Amor Tolls, to Rule Breaker Investing. Amor, welcome. Thank you for having me, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And the obvious first question is, how did you come up with the idea for this novel? Yeah, it's, it's like many of my ideas for my work. It's very, it's very simple. It comes in a flash. I was, uh, as you mentioned, I was in the investment business for 20 years, and I would travel a good deal for the firm, spending a week in any given year in a hotel in Geneva, a week in a hotel in San Francisco, a week in a hotel in Los Angeles or Chicago. And, and one year I was arriving at my hotel in Geneva for the eighth year in a row. And as I walked into the hotel, I recognized some of the people hanging in the lobby from the year before. It was, as if, it was as if they had never left the hotel in the, in the interceding year. And in the elevator on the way upstairs, I thought, you know, this is a nice hotel, but can you imagine if you actually had to live in it? And then I thought, actually, that's kind of an interesting idea for a book. A guy gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. <laughs> and so in my room that night, I uh, took out the hotel stationery, and I rapidly began sketching the outline for this story, immediately uh, sensing that the story should be set in Russia for I guess, obvious reasons to some degree, to seem like the perfect place to, to have somebody be under house arrest for a long time. And, um, and so, that's kind of where, that's where the process begins, in essence, with a sentence. I love hearing the creation stories of almost anything, but Amor, you and I did a pre-interview some days ago, and one thing I learned from you, and I know the, 
your fans already know this about you, but we're just getting to know each other. I learned from you that you were always writing. Just as a kid, you were you just dashing. Even though you went to work on Wall Street and as a successful businessman, had a couple decades, you you've always been writing. That's right. So I began writing fiction in you know, first or second grade, and I wrote in high school. I wrote fiction in college, in graduate school at Stanford, and so that that's always been my passion. And uh, when I moved to New York City at the age of twenty-five. I think I arrived in the city assuming that I would I was beginning a multi-decade effort as a novelist. Um, but I was sort of felt at the time that I, I wasn't enjoying being by myself all day. I wasn't making any money. And so, yes, I joined a friend of mine who had started an investment firm. And 20 years later, we were still working side by side. Mm. But all along the way, I, I knew that if I did not get back to writing fiction, because um, in that first decade, uh, I, I, was, I was working with my partners, uh, I, I stopped writing fiction as we were refining our craft and gathering clients sure. and colleagues. And, and, uh, but I knew that if I didn't go back to writing fiction at some point, that I would probably end up bitter and, drink, and a drinker as an older <laughs> man. So, so in, the, in my 30s, uh, in my spare time while still on the job, I began writing fiction again. And I spent seven years writing a book I didn't like and set that aside, and, but I learned a lot from, uh, from that effort, and, and then just most importantly, that I had not outlined that effort very carefully. And uh, different authors are trying to achieve different things in different novels, but generally, I am very interested in how a novel can be symphonic, meaning like a symphony of Mozart's or of, of Beethoven's, I, th- I think the novel, I, I want my novels to... Uh, have in this in, as a symphony movements, you know, where you are going from passage to passage, and where uh, different themes are recurring over the course mm. of the symphony. Different instruments are picking up that theme, uh, and you're going through different moods as the music is played at different tempos and with different senses of sentiment. But at the end, I kind of want that culminating moment where sort of the symphony ends and the audience says, "Ah, yes, that's it. There's the end <laughs> of the symphony." And and to achieve that. In a novel, I really discovered you need a lot of planning and thinking in advance. And so I really set out the task of writing a novel where I outlined it in great detail over more than a year so I could really visualize the story from beginning to end before I started chapter one. And, and that's what Rules of Civility was. Uh, and then when that book became a bestseller, I, I retired from the firm and wrote A Gentleman Moscow uh, full t- as a full-time author, which is great fun, too. There's something you said in the introduction I, I wanted it to, to come back to. I, you know, I like the way that you sort of pose it as, as the improbable topic of, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, you know, the idea that I would find it exciting suddenly to write a book about a guy trapped in a hotel for 30 years. Um, is, you know, I, there's two things I sort of want to point, about that, point out about that. The first is that if, if I had set out to write a bestseller, you know, I would, you would never pick that as your topic, you know. <laughs> so there's, there's some merit to, to when you're setting out an artistic project like a novel of, of not trying to anticipate the marketplace, mm. but trying to find a story that, is, is, that has its own challenges that you think you can fulfill uh, in a compelling fashion. And, and if you can achieve that, then, you know, uh, the, the book can find its audience, you know. But I, the idea... It seems a little counterintuitive, I think, for, for some to say, well, if you're going to sit down and write a book, why would you force yourself to put your character in a building for 30 years? And, but I, again, this is this counterintuitive fact, which is that in the creative endeavor, adopting some strict rules can be very productive mm. uh, in terms of spurring the imagination and, 
and helping organize uh, what is, in essence, a product of invention. And the, the most famous example, really, I, guess, I suppose, is the sonnet, which is, as we all know from school... 14 sonnet, lines. 14 lines. 8 and 6. That, that's right, and 10 beats per line, iambic pentameter, and it, despite these, with various, you know, uh, sort of a handful of rhyming schemes you can adopt, um, but, but, but otherwise, following these very strict rules of, of, of scape, of meter, and, and size... And most important poets from Shakespeare to the present, writing in French, Italian, or English, have pursued the sonnet at some time in their career, and they keep returning to this very specific shape. And and that's because, you know, as a poet, you can write about anything, in any form, for the most part. So if you decided, I'm going to write about the fleetingness of love or the you know, shortness of life or the, you know, the beauty of nature, whatever your topic is that you're interested in tackling, by accepting the rules of the sonnet, it starts to help you shape uh, the, the, the creative effort. You, you, you're using words that wouldn't have been the first words to pop up into your mind. Mm. So it kind of pushes you off your comfort zone. You, you can't go on as long as you might like. You have to be more concise in that shape. Um, so, and the, the, the nature of the rhyme scheme starts defining the words you're choosing, and so and never, as well as the meter, of course. So accepting those kind of rules can be very productive as the artist. It both narrows the field to some degree, but also it starts spurring you to make decisions that you might not have made uh, in a lazier state, as it were. Yes. And I, and I like to think of it in General Moscow. You know, it's a very specific rule that you're ado- I'm adopting, and, and then the challenge is how can you bring the world into the hotel? And that prompts me as the artist to, to draw on inventions and ideas and images uh, and narrative techniques that I might not have used otherwise, but that ultimately make the story more vibrant than if I'd given myself much more leeway. Yes, and that's such a brilliant point. I, first of all, I really appreciate your point about the symphonic nature of your creation and thinking through the end to get back to the beginning and taking time and recognizing the importance of that. I've never written anything that long, but I can absolutely appreciate that, and I do see the symphony and those returning themes coming back in your work. But then also, just that point about not trying to write a bestseller. Often, in another context, people say, you know, the best way to be happy is don't try to be happy. Try to do something meaningful. Add value to somebody else's life, and you'll become happy. So, the act of not trying to write a bestseller. I don't know if you're a Dorothy Sayers fan, but Lord Peter Whimsey in her series of novels, I always remember his motto was, where my whimsy takes me. And it sounds like you let your whimsy take you that day and take all of us into an enchanting place of your creation. Well, thanks. And that that raises a topic I I, I think about a lot, um, which is both going to be, it's going to sort of take your your observation and and extend it another step, which is that um, I, I do think, I do, and I love, Lord Whimsy, by the way, I love Dorothy Sayers' uh, writing, and right. I think he's, I think, he, I think she's both hilarious and genius, and <laughs> uh, um, I love Whimsy as a character. Um, but, but I, I think that if I look back in my own creative education, uh, you know, as an artist through my teens, my twenties, I'm 53. I very much came of age in an era where we, as younger artists or critics or, or students, were taught that to take into account the, the audience was the, was the worst thing an artist could do. Uh, you know, that it was sort of this, this vision wall. of, yes, right, so you know, the true art is made without, with, with almost intentional indifference <laughs> to the audience. You know, and, uh, and so like you know, James Joyce being the extreme example, 
And um, in, in retrospect, you know, at the age of 50, looking back on my life and looking back on the art that I've studied or listened to or read over the course of my life, I, I realized how crazy, in a way, that notion was of that era. Because for hundreds of years, no artist would have thought that way at all. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly... Michelangelo and Leonardo didn't think that way. You know, they had patrons, and they were you know, painting for the Medici's or for the Pope. And mm-hmm. you know, certainly Dickens and Tolstoy never would have thought that way. Uh, you know, Dickens was writing ser- his books in a serial fashion, where where the audience was was responding kind of as he went. Um, and, and Tolstoy, Dostoevsky were, were very uh, concerned about, and interested in how the book would 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 live in the world uh, among readers. Now, so one of the things that I like to think about in my own work. Is, is I try to think about the first draft as being solely for myself, for the reasons mm-hmm. that we were just talking about a few minutes ago, which is that having said that these, these artists were thinking about an audience, you can't create your best art by trying to anticipate the audience's desires or trying to get rich or trying to become famous or trying to write a bestseller. That's going to spoil everything in a way. Um, but so the way I look at it is you want to kind of, I want to start with my first draft being written solely my, for myself. <laughs> and I often think about it in the terms you put, which is that I do want to follow my whimsies. You know? So whatever my instincts are, I'll follow them. And, and I'll write paragraphs as long as I want to, as short as I want to. I can become redundant. I can, you know, if I have an obsession, I can write about it at length. You know? uh, but anything that I'm interested in, in, in any of my instincts in the writing process in terms of tone or, or language, I will throw into that first draft. Mm. But then I start the editing process, and, and for me, I usually will revise a book three times from beginning to end okay. before, before you read it. And I really think of that as being the process that I'm doing that for the reader, whoever that is, which is I've taken this document, which is full of all of my instincts and whims and, you know, and impulses and weaknesses, and my job now is, is to start to refine that for the benefit of the reader not to become a bestseller or not to become, you know, to make a certain amount of money or what have you, but it's more in honor of the covenant between an artist and audience. You know, I know that someone who's going to buy this book and take time to read this book, that I owe them a certain amount of investment in ensuring that the book is of the highest quality that I can make it. And that tends to mean things like removing redundancies, removing passages that go on unnecessarily long, removing obscurities that sort of satisfy my vanity but, but are not really productive for the work. And so you start to remove elements and refine elements. Yes. Again, not to ring the bell in, in, on the bestseller list, but in order to make it uh, a, 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 as, as a work with a perfect economy, where there's no wasted components. I'm not uh, wasting the reader's time. Um, I, I'm, I'm getting it down to where only the essential... Characters, sentences, words, events are now in place to to tell the story, and so Excellent. I do kind of think of this sort of this, this sort of a little semi schizophrenic process. It's really starting <laughs> with that individual whim, but then going, being willing to go back and, and edit it for this theoretical reader, and I think that's a very productive sort of cycle. 
And I really appreciate you sharing your process. I was certainly going to be asking you those questions, and now you've already answered them, so the so we can move on to other topics because sure. I love hearing the process by which artists come up. And artist is always a very uh, loose term for me, not in the sense that I'm throwing it around loosely, but I think that we're all creating all the time, and I love to hear um, how, how people do their craft well, and especially in your case, economically, and in a way that really serves so many people who've been touched by your story. And I wanted to ask you because I can see Amor in your work some obvious answers. Antecedents in this particular novel, like the great Russian novelist, in some ways you seem to be speaking to Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Turgenev. But I also feel like I'm seeing. Help me out here. I I feel like occasionally I'm seeing some P.G. Woodhouse in there. Are, are you a Woodhouse fan? You know, I I I am a Woodhouse fan, but I ne- I had never read Woodhouse until after Gentleman Moscow. Oh I think somebody gosh. else, somebody else like you said, you know, have you read this? And and I, I love I love Woodhouse. I think he's uh, again a great, very entertaining uh, uh, author and. And I love uh, Waters' use of language. I love uh, the, the, the central characters of his work. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I am a fan. Well, especially, turns of phrase, I, a little later in our interview, I want to read back um, some selections, just short selections from your novel, just hear you riff on them a little bit, because I, there's some great turns of phrase that I look forward to sharing. But let me just ask you, before we move on to that, Amar, what are some other writers from the, the past or the present who impress you or have influenced you? And uh, Since I'm 53... And I've read all my life. It's a long list rather than a short list, you know. And because over the course of my life, I will, I might find an author or find a school of writing and and div- invest a year in, in reading through that and 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 being influenced by it, enjoying it. So in the course of my life, I so I have many narrative heroes mm-hmm. uh, even now that sort of accumulating over time. I am a, a fa- I am a fan of the Russians and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and and. As well as Gogol and, and Turgenev and Chekhov, I'm a fan of, of the magical realists, and uh, most importantly for me, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but certainly Borges. And I'm a, I'm a fan of the of the American, you know, of the first twenty half of the 20th century, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Wharton and James. Uh, I'm a fan of Conrad and Faulkner. Um, so I have kind of a broad array mm. of influences, and and the nice thing about uh, about Narrative is that I'm also very uh, heavily influenced by by songwriters and and by film too. So you know, Dylan is probably my biggest hero, artistically from my youth to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, you know, the great uh, filmmakers of the 30s and 40s and into the 60s and 70s. I'm I'm a, I'm a student of their work as well. All right. Well, before we continue. Support for Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Did you know there's a simpler approach to investing driven by TD Ameritrade's innovative technology? Yep, with essential portfolios, just choose your goal and how much risk you're willing to take, and then get a recommended portfolio based on your unique needs. Learn more about essential portfolios by visiting tdameritrade.com EP. That's tdameritrade.com EP. And support for The Motley Fool also comes from Slack, a collaboration hub for work, for whatever work you do. With Slack, the right people in your team are kept in the loop. The information they need is always at their fingertips. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels, letting you organize conversations and information around projects, offices, and teams. And because everything you need to work on is in one place. We use Slack Every day at The Motley Fool, we've done so for years, and we love it. It's faster, it's easier to get things done. And with Slack, your team is better connected. Slack, it's where work happens. Learn more at slack.com. That's slack.com. 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, I praised your ability to turn a phrase, so I want to read some bits or lines here and there from a gentleman in Moscow. First, just for the pleasure of sharing, uh, but second, mainly to hear your further thoughts on some of the concepts that I see you putting into play. So, here they go in no particular order. Let's start with um, this line. So, I wanted to ask you a question about leadership, basically, because in your novel, you introduce us to Joseph Halecki, and I'll just read a few of your lines about this character. Here I go. For Joseph Halecki was one of those rare executives who had mastered the secret of delegation, that is, having assigned the oversight of the hotel's various functions to capable lieutenants he made himself scarce. When the manager's lieutenants had no choice but to knock, due to a fire in the kitchen or a dispute about a bill, the manager would open his door with an expression of such fatigue, such disappointment, such moral defeat, that the interrupters would inevitably feel a surge of sympathy, assure him that they could see to the matter themselves, and then apologetically back out the door. As a result, the Metropole ran as flawlessly as any hotel in Europe. <laughs> End quote. So, on the one hand, uh, Halecki is a humorous character who's basically delegated away everything and just sits with his feet propped up on his desk. But look at the results. So, is the character showing us great leadership? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I don't know how sincere uh, I am in, 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 the, in, in, in the observation of that passage. It did begin, as you kind of imply, as a comic idea for me. Um, and, and to some degree, uh, out of the Russian tradition, um, what the, the sort of surrealist comedy in Russian narrative of Gogol and later of Bulgakov, um, I, I, lo- I love the strain of, sort of dark or ironic comedy that runs through uh, <laughs> parts of Russian literature. It shows up in, in Dostoevsky, too, uh, to the surprise of some. But, and they, they have kind of a, um, to some degree, it's in the Russian strain, it's because they were constantly in risk of censorship, and even in the Tsarist times, or, or rebuke, or risk of arrest, um, and certainly in the Soviet era. And so they began sort of weaving in this sort of, these absurdist or comic situations that, that kind of would befuddle the censors. You know, they weren't explicitly attacking one thing or another, but, but, but right. the gist of it would, would, would make the point. And, um, and so, in, in, the kind of, in, the, in the spirit of that, I, I did have this notion that at some point the count was going to be called in by the manager, and, and in sort of imagining who the manager of this fancy hotel would be, it, it, sort of, it, it felt like this very, sort of, uh, as I say, sort of in the strain of Russian comedy, that the, <laughs> that the manager of the hotel had never been seen. You know, that was kind of the idea. And that's where it kind of started, is, is you know, the count, because they say, you know, the manager wants to speed, see you, and he's shocked, you know, because, oh my God, and Seven years in the hotel, I've, I don't think I've seen him more than once. And, and then sort of, you know, who would, what would be the manager of a hotel, of a fine hotel that would never be seen? And, the, and that led me to this idea of, you know, of, of supreme delegation. And, you know, he kind of lying in his couch and sort of dreading interaction with people. But, but that being, you know, the perfect hands-off uh, uh, manager in a fine hotel, hotel. Yeah, ran as flawlessly as any hotel in Europe. After the fact, because this, this is one of the fun things in fiction, is I started with that jest. You know the guy, the manager, never who's never seen, which leads me to oh yeah, the reason he's never seen is because he's kind of a misanthrope and and he's going to let the whole thing run by itself. But then what happens is that in the course of writing the novel, only later did it occur to me that uh, that he's a counterpoint to one of the problems of the Soviet era, of course, which is that this top-down management of all details mm. it was one of the most vexing aspects in. in, in in Soviet life for the, for the average Russian citizen or employee. And so what you have is eventually the bishop becomes the manager, and he's the opposite guy. You know, he's the guy who says, well, 
we're going to institute a new form of paperwork in the restaurant. Uh. And what you end up is a different sort of Russian comic scene, but this one is actually based on a real event in history, which is that the setup is that uh, you know, when the waiter takes an order, he has to go to the, the, uh, the controller at the front of the restaurant, submit the order, get it stamped, have a copy made, bring that to the kitchen. And only once the chef has seen that it's been stamped by the uh, man at the front, you know, then he then makes a, has to stamp it to say it's been sheathed by the thing. And then, you know, it goes on to the next thing. And by the time the food gets to the table, it's been through five rounds of paperwork. Mm. And, uh, but th- this is actually, even though it's, it sounds like Gogol or, or a Bogakov as kind of a comic idea, they, general, they genuinely did this mm. in, in the, uh, many of the fine hotels in the Soviet Union in the 40s. So as I say, you kind of, you start with this kind of instinct of comedy, oh, the guy does nothing, but then that becomes a counterpoint to, uh, thematically, to this other thing which is happening. And that's one of the fun Love things it. about the fiction writing process is you can't, you can't plan. So you, some of your best <laughs> thematic images are the ones that you did not plan. They're the ones that sort of pop up through the process. Love it. All right, next one on fate. This is a simple line, quote, but fate would not have the reputation it has if it simply did what it seemed it would do. End quote. Yes, right. And that, you know, I, I, the, uh, I, I, and that's really, that's coming direct from sort of the consciousness of the count, of course, you know, who, I mean, most of the story is told from his perspective, or about 90% of it, but that fits very well with kind of the way that, that he fa- sees things. You know, on the one hand, he's, he's uh, imagined sort of this world in which fate is playing a role, um, but on the other hand, he, he, uh, that he's also acknowledging that fate's constantly pulling the rug out from under you. Just when you think you know what's gonna, what the way things should play, mm. um, there's going to be something which turns everything upside down on you, and, and, and that's where the re- reputation of fate comes from. One, one point I'd make about that sentence, which I, I, you know, I, I thank you, I, I like, thanks for calling attention to it, I like that sentence, <laughs> is that 90% of the time when a reader, as I tour the country speaking about the book, or when I receive emails uh, from readers, through my website, if they say, you know, this is a passage that meant a lot to me, or this was so well put, or, you know, I've, I've written this down or underlined it or shared it with my, my child or my, my, my spouse or what have you, um, almost all the time when they say that, there's, I would never have come up with that sentence in my daily life. It would never have occurred to me to think it. I wouldn't think to say it mm-hmm. to my children or to my colleagues or to my friends. Um, that's almost always the product of the writing process itself. So, it's because in the course of writing the novel, I have to get in the head of the count, who's different than me. I am not the count. Mm-hmm. So I'm adopting a personality which is very different than mine, and he has a background which is very different than mine, and he's in a situation that I've never been in. And suddenly, that personality with that background in that circumstance says something like that. I mean, whatever, that kind of thing pops out kind of yep. in the writing process because it's right from what he would say. And often when I finish a sentence, I'm like, oh, God, yeah, that's well done, Count, you know what a great <laughs> observation of yours. Because I don't have any, I don't feel any. Uh, it's it's almost as if I didn't come up with it at all. Yeah, you know, it's it's like it's I overheard weird. the guy saying it. Love um, it. But that is definitely one of those. Okay, well, this might be another one. My next one for you is this. I'll call this one on first impressions, and I and I love this. Here we go. Quote: After all, what can a first impression tell us about someone we've just met for a minute in the lobby of a hotel? For that matter, what can a first impression tell us about anyone? Why, no more than a chord can tell us about Beethoven, or a brushstroke about Botticelli. By their very nature, human beings are so capricious, so complex, so delightfully contradictory, that they deserve not only our consideration, but our 
reconsideration and our unwavering determination to withhold our opinion until we have engaged with them in every possible setting at every possible hour. End quote. Now, is that more Amor Tolls speaking, or is that more Count Rostov, or both? Uh, that's, that's definitely the, I mean, I, I, I believe that, I guess, and I, I, mean, I do, uh, but it's definitely the Count. And again, that would be something that a sort of an observation about human nature that, that came out of the writing process. You know, and another thing I like about that particular passage is that uh, it springs from the fact, uh, for those who've read the book, you'll remember that early on, the Count, by chance, in the lobby of the hotel, runs into. A, a well-known actress, a Russian actress, who is very full of herself. And the Count ends up putting her in her place. You know, her, her dogs escape from her, her fine dogs. And, <laughs> and the Count kind of puts her in her place uh, and infuriating her. And so she has invited him to her room and offers him dinner and uh, sort of charms him and ultimately, uh, and then, you know, towards seducing him, in fact, um, and that's when the Count is having this observation. As the meal is being served, he's, he's having drawn this rapid sort of conclusion that mm. this woman was, uh, you know, was sort of self-involved or arrogant earlier. He's, he's recalibrating and saying, you know, actually, this is a very different person. You know, this quite charming woman who's, you know, obviously exhausted by her career. And, and you know, now that you get her alone, you can see her. Now, what I like, and I, and I, I, I do believe that, in that that's true in human life. That happens all the time. Um, but part of what I like about that is that, that he doesn't realize he's also being played at that moment. Because mm. she seduces him, and the minute you know, their, their intimacy is done, she, she basically says, listen, can you draw the curtains on your way out the door? Yeah. And he's like, oh, he's been dismissed. You know? so, so on the one hand, he's, also, he's kind of excited by, by being, being charmed by her, and he's drawing this generous conclusion about, about giving people their, their, their second look. And Cuts really both getting, ways, you know, though. Yes, but he has not fully understood the circumstance at that moment in time. All right, a few more for you, and then I want to ask you about the business of being a novelist, but I have to share a few more. I'm guessing, Amor, that you like wine, or at least you like writing about it. Let me share my next quotation. Quote, whichever wine was within, this is as Rostov is just handling a bottle, and he's just feeling the glass in his hand, and he's saying, whichever wine was within, he's thinking, it was decidedly not identical to its neighbors. On the contrary, the contents of the bottle in his hand was the product of a history as unique and complex as that of a nation or a man. In its color, aroma, and taste, it would certainly express the idiosyncratic geology and prevailing climate of its home terrain, but in addition, it would express all the natural phenomena of its vintage. In a sip, it would evoke the timing of that winter's thaw, the extent of that summer's rain the prevailing winds, and the frequency of clouds. Yes, a bottle of wine was the ultimate distillation of time and place, a poetic expression of individuality itself. Yet here it was, cast back into the sea of anonymity, that realm of averages and unknowns. Can you tell me how long did it take you to craft that paragraph? Was that first draft straight yeah. through, pleasing yourself, or were you honing that? It's a beautiful <laughs> yeah. phrase. No, yeah, that's that's going to be hours of work for sure. You know, the the and the, sort of the background of of that section of the passage of the book yeah. is, um, and, and again, it's illustrative of something we've been talking about. Um, what's happened, and this isn't much of a spoiler for those of you who have not read the book. Yes, but it's one of my it's, favorite sections. Keep going. It's, it's relatively early in the book. I wanted the count who, who early on is sort of imagines in his internment as the Soviets are gaining you know, ground and, and initiating kind of communism in Russia. I wanted him to slowly have to come to the recognition that his era was gone, 
you know, that, that he wasn't going to sort of accept that on the first day, and, mm-hmm. but it would be closing in on him. The reality that, that the 19th century Russia that he loved so well was gone for good and, and, and have to, you know, personally sort of accept that his time was over. And it would be a very, it would be a, a sort of a moment of, uh, of recognizing, in essence, the end of his relevance would be kind of the idea. And I was struggling to sort of, having layered in a series of setbacks for him that would be, would be building towards this, this notion, I, what I wanted was a culminating event that would really finally, the straw that broke the camel's back, that would, would say to him, okay, yes, you know what, it's, it's over. My and rush it, is gone. And it is devastating for enophiles. Yeah. Keep going. Yes, exactly. So, so I was kind of going on and on, trying, trying all these different things and images and ideas and events and inter- encounters that could bring it home. And finally, I came up with this notion of, I know what it's going to do. His, his nemesis in the hotel is going to arrange it so that all of the wine labels are removed from the wine cellar in the hotel on the grounds that, that uh, you know, the, the wine, having different labels and different qualities of wine, different prices, is a completely uh, capitalist and aristocratic notion to begin with. That, you know, in, the, in, a, in a pure communist world, there should be red and white wine and same <laughs> price for everybody and none of this elitism and... And that's sort of the crazy notion that is proposed, and so they, they do it. They remove all the labels from this famous wine cellar, and, and the count is there, sort of, and this is where he's, he's having this, this moment of, of the final straw, you know, that's going to make him despondent uh, early in the book. And, and so, so it took me a while to come up with that image. Once I was like, oh, the wine label's perfect, then you start to imagine it, and you know, him going down with the, the, the maitre d' who he likes, and into seeing the rows and rows of, of blank bottles, and... Mm. And as I, as I was, this is a case of again the the lucky uh, the lucky instance of the you, you follow your instincts into an image like this. So yeah, this is perfect. It's kind, it's kind of hilarious in a way, and it's 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 visually good, and uh, and it's just the thing that would piss off the count, and so that's good. And uh, you know, and he had recommended wine earlier, and in a way that alienated his his uh, his nemesis, showing off his knowledge, and so that fits. Um, but then suddenly, in the course of writing the passage, or rewriting the passage, really, or yep. section, that's when I, 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 I knew he was going to be stopping in the, the, the aisles, taking out a bottle without its label, and dwelling for a moment on what that might mean. And, and initially, it might have only been a sentence or two, sort of the, his despair, sort of welling up, and it was really going to be focused on, on this notion of my time has come and gone. But as I myself put myself in his position, that's when this bigger notion sort of came to surface. Whereas, you know, as you think about that, a wine bottle, like in the passage that's described, it is this very, it's about individuality, right? Because you, for those who, and I'm not a very sophisticated wine drinker by any means, but, but as a wine lover, um, we all know that, that a hillside in Tuscany, you can go a half a mile away to a different hillside, and all of the wines are from the, within a mile of each other, they can be extremely different in terms of their taste because mm-hmm. of the, the geology where they of their particular hillside because of whether it's facing you know towards weather away from weather in the sun out of the sun at, at a, mm. a you know uh, 500 feet higher in altitude or not any one of these things starts to change the composition of that wine but then you add onto that years right we all know that too that you can take that exact same acre or even quarter acre of grapes and they will differ year after year after year based on on the changes in the weather. So I started thinking about that notion. And again, the sort of the final gift that the creative process gives you is, is of course, again, that's a, that was a perfect uh, thing to talk about in, in relation to the Soviet era, where again the 
one of the shortcomings of, of the communist experiment, of course, was 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 the whittling down of individuality, Indeed. the, the uh, not allowing uh, individuality the, the advantages of individuality to express themselves um, uh, in society, and in fact, viewing them almost as the enemy of the the communist uh, experiment. Mm-hmm. So, um, so suddenly you have this notion where, yeah, it, it is the wine bottle labels is at the perfect moment. Uh, it's a great metaphor for the individuality of humanity, but then uh, it, it serves as a nice counterpoint to the bigger theme of what is happening in Russia. Yes. All right, two more quick ones, and then let's get on to a little bit more biz talk. So, uh, to, the last two are on history and on life. So, I'll let you take these in either order, Amor. The first is just the line, quote, History is the business of identifying momentous events from the comfort of a high-backed chair, end quote. <laughs> and then the second on life, quote, Alexander Rostov was neither scientist nor sage, but at the age of 64, he was wise enough to know that life does not proceed by leaps and bounds. It unfolds. At any given moment, it is the manifestation of a thousand transitions. Our faculties wax and wane, our experiences accumulate, and our opinions evolve, if not glacially, then at least gradually such that the events of an average day are as likely to transform who we are as a pinch of pepper is to transform a stew, end quote. you got history on the one hand, created by the, the gray eminences sitting in their high-packed chairs going, it is that event, now looking backwards, that I realized that was their turning point. But then I also loved, and I wanted to just share your view on life. I know that you're, you and I are right about the same age. Sounds like you're a year older. I'm 52, you're 53. You're talking about a 64-year-old man, but is that already kind of your viewpoint, that life unfolds in, in that way, and the average day is, is likely to be transformed as a pinch of pepper in a stew? Yeah, I, I, do, I do think that, uh, that I think we, any of us, in, in looking at our lives, but in reading the papers, in, in studying the course of history or the evolution of the country politically or any of these things, um, you know, over time you cannot help but, on the one hand, we're obsessed with minutiae, the things that are happening every day, which are kind of meaningless. <laughs> On the other hand, we're then drawing conclusions about, okay, this is the big thing, but we're kind of, that's kind of off mark, too. You know? mm. So there, there is, it's, you kind of look back over time, and you say, all right, well, there's, there's what is very big gears turning in, in, in time and history, and, mm. and uh, uh, it's not about the specific day. It's about the evolution of all these various forces that you realize in retrospect, cultural forces and political forces and technological forces and commerce and you know, all at once, uh, slowly over time, uh, steering events. And, and, um, but yet we have that desire to go back and say, this is the thing. You know, this is the one that really matters. <laughs> this is the thing that turned it. And despite the fact that, you know, every time we do it, you know, 60 days later, we're kind of proven wrong by that. Mm. If you look back over centuries, the last four or five centuries, uh, you know, of the, of, the, of the great, you know, what are the post-Renaissance, the real extended modern era of, of, of human thought and creativity, um, and commerce. Um, it, for centuries, we took uh, cultural creations, books, whether you know, nonfiction works, works of history, of science, mm-hmm. uh, novels, symphonies, you know, these various forms of, of creative output. And uh, for, for most centuries, we, we weren't inundated with them. We would have uh, access to a relatively small universe of either novels or works of history or works of science or, or, or works of art, um, and we would dwell on them. And we would consume that creative output, and it would nourish us and, and affect and shape our, our thinking and our behavior over time. Um, 
what, what's happening more in the modern era is that the flow of information, if you think of you know, Twitter as being an example, um, it, it is coming so fast, and it's so, uh, it doesn't have much breadth to it. Um, but it's it is voluminous. Of, <laughs> but it's voluminous. And, I, and, and I, the way I think of it is now is that now that flow of information is, instead of us consuming it and being nourished by it, etc., it's consuming us. So there's this interesting point mm. at which a human idea, the expression of a human idea, if you, start, if, you, if you start shrinking it in terms of its duration, making it increasingly concise, and then shoot it out with rapid fire, you make this transition from where you are consuming it for your benefit, and it is consuming you instead. Mm. And there's this very natural tension in the modern era that we are experiencing in a way that, that no generations for hundreds of years have ever yeah. quite had to grapple with. And, and one of the things that I, on the one hand, people are becoming addicted to this frequency and, and, and the, the, the meaningfulness of their engagement is shrinking, you know, right. as they're responding to uh, a comment that is very brief, out of context, made an hour ago, and there's a f- firestorm around it in 24 hours we don't even, later, we don't even remember it. You know, we're <laughs> on to the next thing. And, and, and news is being delivered in that way, not just in Twitter, but in, you know, in, in the 24-hour news environment and in, uh, you know, using through the Internet, you know, the downloading, Facebook, what, what all, all these various conduits are giving us, this higher volume, uh, uh, shorter duration, less developed access to, to human knowledge and, or what a version of human thought and knowledge. And, but I think what's nice is that you're seeing some counterpoint to this. Is that the human, is, while you can get addicted to that and become obsessed with it, on the other hand, we're seeing a desire for the opposite at the same time. And, I, and I, you see it in things like, um, and you, you see it in, in the novel continues to be read around mm-hmm. the country, and, uh, and, and serious books are being read, long books are being read, and discussed in book groups, and uh, you know, uh, uh, people are engaged by, by books in a serious way. Um, you see it in long-form television. You know, this notion of, of uh, TV is better today than it was at any time in my life, mm-hmm. and one reason why is because the narratives are getting longer in television. Mm. And people love that. They would rather see the, the 10-hour story or where the entire season is a single story. Yeah, the whole unfolded. book instead of a two-hour uh, exactly. abridged version of someone's book. Exactly. And it's, you know, you go back and watch, you know, Mission Impossible or Law and Order, and you know, there's a pleasure in watching, yes, that kind of thing where every episode is its own story, and it's the same story over and over and over. There's some pleasure. <laughs> Jurassic <to that>. Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, but but on the other hand, but we what we've really seen is that what, no, I want I want to see the Crown. I want to see, you know, the Night Manager. I want to mm. see this thing where this where it's not every episode is its own story and it's kind of the same. I want to see the thing unfold. The characters change, events change. I want it to be a slower pace so that there can be a scene where two people are just sitting at, looking at each other quietly and. And that's going to mean something to me later, and I don't even know what it is, but mm-hmm. that's, you know, but it's beautiful or what have you. So, so you're seeing that. You're seeing it in podcasts in terms of, you know, things like Serial, you know, where people are suddenly showing the desire, instead of listening to songs on the radio, to listen to uh, a 10-episode, you know, uh, investigation, mm-hmm. you know, um, and where they don't even know the outcome yet. And um, so, so we are seeing both things. That battle is going on, and, and in the marketplace you're seeing – uh, the success of both, and, uh, and, and but luckily, I think for, for us all, there's a no, the long form thing kind of has surfaced just when you thought it would never surface. Mm. So just when you thought it's just going to 
our attention spans can get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And, and why would you ever print a long book or, or, in, or, or have a television series that you have to watch 12 hours to see the end? Or, you know, but it turned out it's, that's not true. There was a great desire for that. And, and obviously, you're benefiting from that, Amor. You, you as a novelist, and I, I, I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions. There, for example, does being a novelist pay the bills? Do you have any side gigs, and or just what you were talking about there? Are are you tempted to maybe have you written for television or longer form stuff that's not a novel? Gentleman Moscow is being made into an eight to ten hour television series, just like I was talking about long form television. It's starring Kenneth Branagh, Sir Kenneth Branagh, uh-huh. which is terrific as the Count. And that should be shot next summer, and you know, hopefully, we'll all see it two years from now. Tremendous. Um, uh, but I am very little involved in that, uh, other than I was involved in, in agreeing that Bronig was the right guy. I was involved in, 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 in the selection of the director, um, but I, otherwise, it's a pretty hands-off thing for me. Okay. Rules of civility. Lionsgate had the option, has the option for, and and for five years was developing that as a feature-length film, and. Uh, had written, had commissioned a series of, of screenwriters to, to tackle that book as a two-hour feature, and uh, basically last year they came back to me and said, "Listen, we, you know, we're not happy with what we have, and uh, we don't think it does service to the book. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, we, what they've done is that we're, we're going to actually do a television series for that as well. So that's going to be turned into an eight to ten-hour television story. I am involved in that, so I am writing." Uh, the pilot for that with Lionsgate, and we don't know where the outlet is or who the stars are, um, but we, you know, we're confident that that it will find its place on screen. And, and that's again, it's a much better format for a novelist because because the characters can evolve over the course of the story as opposed to fitting into the, you know, the modern three act, one hour and forty minute story of yeah. feature structure. So, Amor, what is your reflection on writing? Maybe chopped up episodes of a book that you've fully written as a novelist. Is it fun, engaging, challenging? Um, are you just copying and pasting? No, I mean, it, it is its own challenge. Uh, it, there, there's a, certainly, I know the material, so it's, it's, it's a different, you know, I have a leg up on a person who's, who's taking it from scratch, right. um, because you know, in the case of Rules of Civility, the, the dialogue is there. It's, that book is somewhat cinematic in, in uh um, you know, and so, so I know those characters. I know the the environments they're in. I know the the, the tone of their voices, and and so um, it, it doesn't daunt me as a, as a thing. I think it is going to be fun. Um, you know, but going back to your question, uh, can is can you make a living as a writer today? Um, you know, I, I've been very fortunate in that I can. Um, but it, it is the, the the cutoff is getting harder and harder and harder. The hurdle is getting higher. If you want to mm-hmm. put it that way, mm-hmm. that that we are in an environment where, where tens of thousands of books are being published in any given year. Um, uh, and, uh, and a smaller group are finding their way to the public. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, that's challenging. And so, so you, in a way, it's easier to get published today than it is to get, make a living as an, as an, as an huh. author. Yes. Um, because you can get published and make very little money. You know, you could spend five years writing a book and, and get published and not, you know, it, it doesn't get broadly read or it doesn't get uh, uh, supported. And that's partly you know, not to get bogged down in the business of it all, but over decades, the publishing industry, for very understandable reasons, having determined that it's hard for them to predict what's going to work, instead kind of adopts the portfolio strategy of, ah. well, we'll publish 20 novels. And we think maybe these four will be the will be the good ones, but we're not really sure. And and so what we'll do is we'll kind of stand back and wait and see what happens. 
And if one of them, two of them start to really take off, we're going to put a lot of resources behind helping that continue, that book find its, you know, expand its audience. Mm-hmm. And if the books don't really catch on, well, too bad. You know, and, and so there's a, that particularly is true in if they can get away with writing a small advance, which meant most, many writers, you know, you're operating off of a small advance. So for them, it's not a big investment. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the venture capital world. Yes. So, and so that means that by definition, they're not expecting all of these books to succeed. And, you know, they're expecting a, a small portion of them to succeed. And, and if, you're, if the book does not grab the imagination of readers pretty quick, then you run the risk that the, the publishing house starts to move on to the mm-hmm. other things and, and the, the book can be kind of left behind regardless of its merits, you know. And, and so, so it is challenging um, in, in, as an industry today. And uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, people who, and writing comes in many forms as a profession. I am not in this side of it, but you hear about it and read about it all the time. It's getting harder to make a living as a magazine writer, as a uh, mm-hmm. um, as doing long form nonfiction, any of these things, and um, you know, there's more and more outlets that are publishing people, you know, in the internet, where they basically assume that you're going to write the thing for a hundred bucks or five hundred bucks, and then market free. it yourself off your blog and your followers. Yeah, and you know, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so it is. There is a lot of uh, the the disruption has certainly surfaced throughout the writing world, and, and, and it is a challenge uh, to, to make a living. Um, but that's partly because uh, there's a lot of content out there, and not all of it is being tied to an economic uh, model. All right. Well, as we move toward conclusion, Amor, let's just look forward a little bit for a minute or two. How do you see the industry changing further? Do you want to make any predictions about the future, whether we're talking about novels or art or consumption of media? Well, um, we kind of got a start of that in terms of talking about, about I think, you know, long form finding its place. Um, I think you'll continue to see. I, the only thing I would know, I can say with any kind of confidence, I think, is, is because this is probably true of all creative environments, mm-hmm. is the, the industry will constantly be surprised by what's working next. You know, <laughs> the, the ability to anticipate what's working is, is, is very uh, limited. Mm. Um, and and the, because of kind of what I was saying a second ago, which is that the industry kind of backs what's working. Well, so you get a lot of herd behavior in film in publishing just as you do in the equity markets. Um, and, and that shows up, in, that, that constantly is creating gaps that, that then get uh, forgotten about, pushed aside, and become you know, next year's success story. So what I mean by that is, for instance, there was a point in, oh, I guess this is the 90s, uh, 2000s, uh, you know, somewhere in that zone, mm-hmm. um, in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, where the publishing industry really thought, uh, I guess this would be the 90s, you know, young people are just not going to read, particularly teenagers. Forget, it's a, it's, it's a waste. You know, anybody who's, they have to read books for school, they're still going to read The Cash in the Rye and, and stuff like that in school. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they're going to be playing video games and watching TV and, you know, listening to music and obsessed with whatever. And, you know, they have no interest in reading. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Anne Brashares, uh was told that when she submitted her first volume of the sisterhood of the traveling pants, Hmm. which is about teenage girls, four girls who share the same pair of blue jeans and and sort of magical things that happened to them. And, and, and a very senior editor at a major house basically said, listen, this is very nice what you've done, you know, and I respect your efforts, but to tell you the truth, there's no business of teen readers, period. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that went on to sell millions of copies. 
um, and and had four different volumes, you know, on the you know in total, and became a, two different feature films, mm. you know. Um, but but you can get that, and, and Harry Potter was a, obviously a version of that. Yeah, Same that. thing. You know, they they did not think that there was a marketplace for for books, and suddenly Harry Potter works. And now, the the young adult category in fiction is is gigantic. It's rapidly growing, and it's terrific. It's filled with amazing work. Um, and the great thing it turned out about young people is that they were dying to read. Didn't have anything that didn't have anything that was being written to them. And, and so much so that when they find something they like, they'll read 10 copies of it, you know, 10 versions of it in a row. Mm. So, so not only did you have suddenly books that are succeeding that age, you have whole series which are succeeding. And, um, and so, so that, that can, that's going to continue to happen, where yes. you, know, you have the industry sort of think, okay, well, there's no interest in that, or you know, it's all going to be this. And, and the next thing you know, the exact thing that they thought wasn't going to be successful is, is the next thing that, the, that everybody's going to be trying to do. Mm. Um, so I think we'll continue to see that. All right, I have one final question to conclude on. But even before I ask that, really briefly, I see Yale undergrad, I see English literature masters at Stanford, I believe. Big rivalry between those kinds of universities. And we're looking back at which has added more value to your life, Yale or Stanford? Well, I, I was very lucky to, to go to both places. They're both amazing. They're very different, as you said. And for me, uh, what was great is was the sequence for me worked out very well in that at the time, this is now, you know, 30 years ago, right? Sure. But at the time, Yale, in its New Haven environment, relatively rough city, poor city, uh, was a very politically active, socially active, artistically active environment. Um, so you had the coursework, but you had all these other things going on, and that was great fun as an undergraduate. Um, Stanford was much more, is much more secluded. You know, it's on this incredible campus. The weather's terrific. Everybody looks terrific. You know, everybody's well-dressed and polite. You know, it's a very different place. Wow. Even the head of Stanford, when I was there, called it uh, the Harvard of the West and the Disneyland of the North. You know, he said that. You know? so, um, and, and so it, that was a great place to be a graduate student, you know, where, where you, because you come and you know you're doing your work. You know, you, you know what you want to do. It's less, about, uh, it's less about what's happening in the quad. It's less about what's happening in the dining hall when you're a graduate student. Whereas as an undergraduate, you know, you want as much craziness in the quad and the dining hall as you can get, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, so, so it, was, it was the right sequence for me. All right. And my final question, this is an observation of my wife, Margaret, as I was reading the book to her, but she was talking, and no spoilers, we've tried to go pretty spoiler-free with this yeah. full podcast. So I, I will mention something that happens in the book, but a lot more happens after that in the book. But one of the transitions that our aristocrat, Count Rostov, makes is he, he transitions from the non-working class into the working class in, in the book and in the context of the hotel. And I'm wondering if that was an intentional theme of yours or something that you wanted to talk a little bit about using, yeah. the, using a gentleman in Moscow. And, and, and then maybe just to close then further, you're, you're arguably now in, in the non-working class. Uh, well, I know you work hard, uh, but <laughs> hey, you're not job. having it. You, you walked away from your desk job. So, Amor, yeah. do you ever see yourself making Rostov's transition back in at any point? Well, no, I, I mean, I like working, uh, I like where I am now. I like writing by myself, and then you go out and talk to the book with readers if you're lucky, you know, every couple of years. That's about the right cycle for me. But yes, I, you know, the, A Gentleman in Moscow at its heart is a book about purpose. I mean, you have this individual who at the opening of the book uh, is sentenced to house arrest in the hotel. After the revolution, he's, because of the revolution, he's lost his family, his possessions, his social standing, and he's watching as everything that he cares about in Russian life is being systematically undermined or unwound, uh, uprooted by the new regime. Mm -hmm. That's how he starts. 
in the course of his three years at the hotel, he must establish a new relationships. He must find new causes for happiness, however small, and ultimately he must find a new sense of purpose. And so as, as an aristocrat, uh, at 30 years old, he's never worked, he doesn't have children, he hasn't been married, things have come pretty easily to him, and he's led a rich life in that form, mm-hmm. a life of culture and food and cuisine and relationships and the knowledge of history and, and everything else. But, but there's something, of course, we relatively hollow at the same time about that privileged position. And, and so because of what he's lost, he, he, he does get a job. You know, kind of essence part of the past time, and and finds a whole array of satisfactions in the course of of the nature of working alongside people mm. and, and you know, to fulfill a, a job. And he's ultimately uh, introduced to a young girl and asked to keep an eye on her, and that has a profound effect on him. You know, and which is another sort of layer of purpose that we go through. So, so yes, I very self consciously was thinking about it as how do you take an individual who's had all these wonderful things and feels very satisfied with life, but yet. Uh, it's going to find a new layers of richness in life through different types of experience, including one of which is a job. Yeah, through working and through being and through parenting, in a sense. That's right. It's a delightful way of thinking about the book. Well, Amor, you've been very generous, not just with your time, but with your insights. Thank you very much. My pleasure, David. Thank you. I have a feeling that's the kind of interview I'm going to tune back into a year or two from now when I need a little bit more inspiration or thinking more deeply about how we live, who we are, and how we can be our better selves. You know, I really appreciate Amor's points early on in that interview about following your instincts. I was naturally thinking of Lord Peter Whimsey for any fans of Dorothy Sayers' novels, Where My Whimsy Takes Me. And very much did Amor double underline that sense that you should follow your instincts to discovery and find your whimsy, whatever art form you're practicing or creation you are hatching. And I also appreciate the separate point, and they, they really kind of hang well together, that he made about rules and putting some ground rules in place. So, yes, it's one thing to follow your whimsy, but it's even better when you have a sonnet form that you're writing to. Or, last week, thinking of Priya Parker, talking about pop-up rules that we can give to make our parties better. And you'll remember she suggested to each of us that not a bad, simple pop-up rule to have at your next gathering would be, you're not allowed to pour yourself a drink at this party. You can only pour drinks for others. And you think about how that changes our nature of our gatherings and our interactions when you're looking around trying to see who you can help out by getting them a drink or broaching a conversation with somebody you haven't met so that they can pour you a drink. So, just a fun thought. But that's a ground rule. And so are the rules that surround our various artistic forms, whether it's your next party or the sonnet. So, I really appreciate that thoughtful insight from Amor. Coming up next week, yep, Authors in August continues, and Mark Penn is coming to Rule Breaker Investing. Mark, the former chief strategy officer at Microsoft during the Bill Gates golden days, and also somebody very politically active in in the sense that he ran campaigns for the Clintons and for Tony Blair. But politics aside, Mark is a deep thinker about trends. He wrote a book 10 years ago called Micro Trends, and he's just out this year with Micro Trends Squared. His follow up, his sequel 10 years later, looking at micro trends, small things he's seeing in the data as somebody who's in charge of Harris polling, small things he's seeing in the data, whether it's about how we live our lives, how we love, how we vote or how we create or do business. Mark Penn is a talented thinker, and he's going to be presenting on the podcast next week some of the micro-trends you and I should be watching for, both as investors, business people, and fellow travelers on the path of life. In the meantime, thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to my guest, Amor Tolls, and have a great week. Full on. 
As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.